Why don't we pray? Lord, help, help us. Help your servant, God, deliver your message. Lord, these are your people. There is such great promise over every one of them. Lord, you look down from heaven and you see them individually. You know their heart needs, Lord. You know their concerns. You even know their worries, Lord. There's not a piece of their life that is hidden from you. And you, Lord, are the one who cares so deeply for them, so, so greatly for them, Lord. No man, no woman, no organization, no, not even a church could extend the amount of love, Lord, that you have for them but you. And in this moment, Holy Spirit, we're inviting you. I'm asking you to do that work on the inside of every person right now that only you can do. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. Now, if you've got your scripture, I hope you do. Maybe it's on your phone. Maybe it's on your iPad. Maybe it's a, you know, a traditional Bible with real pages. I don't know if you've seen those around, but those, you know, the pages. Why don't you turn with me to John chapter 19 and Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and John 19. You can put your fingers there. You know, I'm, I'm, I am old enough to remember when you would hear everybody's Bible pages turning in the church auditorium. It was kind of a pretty sound. I hear a couple pages turning right now. Now we're just swiping. I mean, it still counts, right, because it's the Word of God, and if you want to swipe somebody's Bible. Anyway, listen, think about it. Every person is going to give their last statement. We'll all have our last meal. We'll all have our, our last moment. We'll all have our last breath. And we will, whether we know or not, or not give our, our last statement in, the, in, this, in this life. Uh, we, we will say something that will stick around forever in the minds of many people. Uh, and what we say at the end gives a real picture into who we are, what we are, and what really matters to us in this life. Uh, you know, you perhaps have seen the film, uh, The Greatest Showman. P.T. Barnum was quoted on his deathbed to have said, what were today's receipts? So that would have been what was important to P.T. Barnum. He was worried about the receipts, right? On March 14th, 1883, Karl Marx died. Woo! Karl Marx was one of the founders of communism. And his housekeeper on his deathbed came to him and said, hey, listen, tell me your last words and I'll write them down. And Marx replied, he said, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough already. And boy, he had said enough already, had he not, right? He had said too much. James Donald French, he was a convicted murderer and the last criminal ever executed under the death penalty in Oklahoma. He was sentenced to death by electrocution. In the death chamber, James Donald French shouted these words to the members of the press who were to witness his execution. He says, how's this for a headline? French fries. Okay, it's a little dark humor. This is bad. There was once a grammarian. He was French. That should tell you everything you need to know. He would never miss an opportunity to show off his grammatical skills, showing off even on his deathbed in 1902. He says, I am about to or I am going to die. Either expression is correct. But he didn't tell people how to use the punctuation. Anyway, final statements. Some are dumb. Some are just bad, some are dark, but the truth of the matter is we will all make a final statement. Jesus makes some final statements. He makes seven final statements, which I believe are statements of provision, statements he made while he was on this earth, while he was hanging on the cross. Even the order of these statements are significant. So today is Palm Sunday, 
And this is the day we remember when our Lord and Savior traveled into Jerusalem on a donkey. When the people went ahead of him and laid down palm branches to honor the Lord coming into Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna. It was a festive day. It was a happy day, a joyful day, because in the minds of the people, Jesus was going to establish his kingdom then and there. It was Their hope was in Jesus, that he would drive out the occupying force, the Romans, and then they would be able to rule and reign free from that oppression. So as they cried, Hosanna, which means save now, what does Jesus do? Well, the Bible says that he cried, but he cried a different kind of cry. Jesus actually wept. Why did Jesus weep on such a festive day? Because Jesus, being God, knew what the future entailed and what would happen to these people. He knew that in about 40 years from this moment, Titus and the Roman legions would come in and effectively uh, destroy the city of Jerusalem, killing thousands and thousands of people. And he also knew that these very people that were honoring him now in this moment would turn on him. They would betray him and they would want him crucified. So in fact, in Luke chapter 19, it says that Jesus on Palm Sunday, as he drew near to Jerusalem, it says that he wept over it. Look with me at the scripture in verse 42. It says, saying, would you that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in and every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, I think it's so very tragic when people you love miss their visitation. To miss one's visitation really is a tragedy. It's so very sad to see what appears to be their final opportunity, come and go. And you sit back and you quietly mourn, or maybe you outwardly mourn, understanding that that was the moment that God really wanted to get involved in the details of their life, but they missed it. They absolutely missed it. It's a tragedy. It stirs up a certain amount of sorrow in my own heart, especially when I think about people who've already passed, people who've already gone on, and they have absolutely no opportunity to experience another visitation from the Lord in that way. And perhaps you're sitting here now in this moment thinking to yourself, I really have no idea what you're talking about. Or, or maybe you're online watching and you're, you're not even sure what, what I'm talking about. So I would pray in this moment that you would have a sensitivity, that you would have an awareness of what God is doing in your life now. The God in heaven doing what he can only do in your heart right now below. This is a moment in your life where you can be visited by the Lord in a, such a unique way that it changes your entire life. This is what he's talking about. This is the moment that these people are missing. And I don't want you to miss your visitation. I don't want you to miss what God's doing in your life. So after this moment comes and goes, Jesus goes to the upper room with his disciples. And they have what is known as the Last Supper. They break the bread and they drink the cup. And after this, Christ goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's in such anguish over the crucifixion as he prays that he cries and he mourns. 
And there in that garden, he's arrested and he's taken away in chains. And then he's sent to Caiaphas and ultimately to Annas. And there he's tried up on some false charges. And then the real horrific part of the crucifixion begins. And he's sent to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who sees a lot of men who have been accused of crimes. And he can immediately see that with Jesus, Jesus is not guilty. He's not even a threat to the Roman uh, rule of that time. And he knows it, but he's walking on diplomatic eggshells at that time with the religious authorities. A variety of things have kind of popped up. Uh, Events have taken place to put him in this very tense situation with the people he rules over. So that's Pontius Pilate's situation. Jesus was, in a way, kind of a hot potato, a political hot potato. Pilate didn't want to execute him, but he knew that if he released him, he was going to have a lot of trouble, so he came up with this compromise. The compromise was to scourge Jesus, which should satisfy the bloodthirsty religious folk of that time. Scourging was absolutely awful. It was meant to bring a man as close to death as they could without killing him. It would be kind of like a halfway death. The Romans would use many devices of torture, and one of those devices of torture was a whip. It was a whip with a short handle. It was called the cat of nine tails. And they had leather straps attached to this uh, whip, and on those leather straps you had metal, you had glass, you had sharp bone fragments there. And as that person was whipped, it was meant to shred the skin from their back. And eventually, you know, working its way into the skeletal tissue, uh, ripping out hunks of muscle and and exposing the vital organs of the person being whipped. Now, Jesus was whipped 39 times with this cat of nine tails. Then the Roman soldiers, after they whipped him 39 times, took Jesus and they pressed a crown of thorns down on his head and they beat him and gave him a mock scepter. And Pilate brings out Christ to these people, beaten and bloodied and bruised. And he says to these people, he says, does this satisfy you? Is this enough for you? To which they said, no, this is not enough for us. Look at John chapter 19. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but King Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And they were crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, it was written in Latin and it was written in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written I have written. And so we'll stop there for just a moment. I think it's interesting that the Gospels don't spend much time describing the crucifixion or a crucifixion because everybody in that world, they were familiar with what the crucifixion was. There were lots of crosses all over the place. People understood what was happening. Many people had been executed that way. It was not uncommon to see men hanging from crosses or to see somebody dragging a cross through the city streets. 
We sing about the cross. We talk about the cross, and and rightly so. For us, it, it is a symbol of hope. But for them back then, it was not a symbol of hope. It was a symbol of, of death. It was a symbol of torture and humiliation. So the symbolism is different today. But now, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a strong man. By trade, he was a builder. He understood how to work with raw materials like stone and like timber. And he knew how to work. He was strong. He was well equipped to do that. And it's amazing to me that he was able to drag his cross through the city streets. Some say that that cross weighed 300 pounds. So even after the scourging, he was able to carry his cross. And then finally being hung on the cross, nails through his wrists or his hands and nailed through his feet. So to understand this, to understand death on the cross was to understand that it was not death by crucifixion. It was really death by suffocation. A person could hang on the cross and live for two or three days or even more. They would develop a severe fever and that in turn would, you know, produce a burning, you know, thirst within their mouth. Inflammation would increase all over their body, especially in the wounds of the back and the hands and the feet. Congestion from blood would start to build up in the lungs and in the heart. Every vein and every artery would start to swell and someone being crucified. And with all of that combined, this made the crucifixion the cruelest of deaths. At the foot of the death, we don't, excuse me, at the foot of the cross, which we don't have one attached, there was a base that the feet would be able to barely touch. And a person being crucified, Jesus, as he was being crucified, would start to push himself up and pull himself up to gasp for air as he was suffocating. Can you imagine how painful that was for Jesus? Because all that protective skin, tissue, and muscle had already been peeled back, and he was opened up. So here he hangs on the cross in excruciating pain. Sadly, no longer would those hands of our Lord be extended to those in need, and no longer would those feet take him to people in need. And he hangs on the cross of Calvary, And while he's hanging there, he gives seven statements, seven statements of provision, really. Look with me at Luke chapter 23, verses 34 through 43. The scripture says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him and saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, uh, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourselves. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. And the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The first words from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. This is Jesus' first statement of provision. 
Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus provides through prayer. To me, these words are surprising. Perhaps they would be surprising to you as well. He's not praying for his family. He's not praying for his friends. But the first people he prays for are his enemies, which is, again, not a great surprise because this is what Jesus preached. He preached it on a sunny day on the Mount of Beatitudes there on that northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And now he demonstrates how to do that on this dark day, the day he died on the cross. But it's amazing to me that he said, Father, forgive them. You would have thought that he prayed for anybody else but his enemies. But that's his first prayer. And we see from this example, my friends, that no one is beyond the reach of prayer. No one is beyond the reach of prayer. These are hard people, hardened Roman soldiers. These are hardened religious leaders. These are indifferent folk gathered around here. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, they don't even realize how radical their sin is. They don't understand. So, Father, forgive them. They don't realize how dark their sin really is. They don't even comprehend it. See, Pilate knew they were innocent. I think the religious leaders understood that he was innocent, yet they brought him up on false charges. Jesus is saying, listen, this is such an enormous crime. This is such enormous sin that they really don't understand the ramifications of what they're doing. Can you personally think of somebody in your life who's hard towards the gospel, hard, maybe even towards God. The last time you tried to talk to them, maybe they cut you off abruptly. Maybe the last time you tried to bring Jesus up, they ignored you, said something rude to you, dismissed you, got you out of their face, and you take that with you on the inside, and maybe not talking about it with anybody, but realizing, hey, I'm never going to do that again. Let me just say this. Don't let that harden your heart. It didn't harden Jesus' heart, no matter what they went through. I think of this also. That we should never give up praying for our friends. We should never give up praying for our family. We should certainly never even give up praying for our enemies. For this is what is modeled for us. Because no one is beyond the reach of prayer. This is how God gets supernaturally involved in a person's life. It's through prayer. There's within our church a precious couple who 12 years ago received a letter from their son. This letter contained the reasons for why they had become an atheist. A statement of faith, if you will, for why they had converted to this belief that there was no God. So, what does this godly mother do upon receiving this letter? She promptly throws it squarely between the pages of her Bible. There, always present, there, always remembered, a son always prayed for in her Bible. And then without warning... God moved in a remarkable way. Their son would often pass a church while he commuted here and he commuted there. And as he'd drive by, he would hear this small voice saying, come in, come in. And as he would drive, he would try to ignore that voice. But then one day, one day, day after day, hearing this boy, moment after moment, hearing this little voice saying, come in, he one day went in. And his life was forever changed. And now he's no longer an atheist, but he is a sold-out believer. That's God at work on the inside of somebody's life through prayer, softening a hard heart that was once so very committed for well over a decade to an atheistic lifestyle. 
But how does God break through? He breaks through in the way he best breaks through. He talks to the very heart of that person. He woos them. He calls to them. And they, they have the opportunity to listen, hear, and respond. So never give up on your family. Never give up on your friends. Never give up on your enemies. Always pray for them. For this is how God moves miraculously. This is how God softens a hard heart. It really is through prayer. And that's an outstanding testimony of what God did in somebody's life. Amen? Remember last week, Pastor Steve preached from Isaiah chapter 53. This is Jesus making, uh, it, it reveals the fact that Jesus would intercede for the transgressors. So each, on each side of Jesus are two thieves, one on each side of him. We call them thieves, really, because that's kind of how the scripture describes them. But generally speaking, the Roman government wouldn't crucify your run-of-the-mill thief, Right? They were probably more like, you know, people committed to the violent overthrow of the Roman government. They would have been called ancient homeland terrorists or something like that. They were hardened criminals hung on each side of Jesus. Yet Jesus prays for them and he prays for those who crucify him. And we wonder to ourselves, how much good did that prayer really do? Well, I would just say this, that it did a great deal of good during Pentecost Right after all this has occurred, Peter spoke to a large crowd of people. In that crowd were the people who actually played a role in the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter probably recognized him. Hey, that's the guy who pounded the nails into Jesus. Oh, I recognize you. You're one of those religious guys that convicted Jesus. Oh, yeah, you were there. You were cheering. I saw you there. I know this one over here, too. And Peter actually said to those people, he preached, you can look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And this is his witness, and this is part of his preaching. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Can you imagine how convicting that was? He was probably pointing to them as he was preaching. You know, you don't see Pastor Steve or I or many other people doing the preacher pointer finger, right? Some of us grew up under that, you know. You know the pastor meant business when he whipped out his finger. Maybe even whipped off his bifocals. I wear contacts now. But I do have to stand a good ways back. <laughs> so he's pointing at them. Their reaction was priceless in a good way. The scripture says, you know, that they were cut to the heart. This is their way of saying, yeah, I, I did do that. Yeah, I am that guy. I did it. And they were cut to the heart. Uh, have you ever been cut to the heart? When you realize, oh yeah, that's me. That's me. You got me. There's something special about that. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those far off, for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about three thousand souls. Is that not encouraging? What can God do with a prayer? He can save souls. 
So Jesus' first statement of provision is that he provides through prayer. Never give up praying for people. Never give up. Jesus' second statement of provision is Jesus provides through promises. Remember what he said to the thief. He said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a wonderful promise. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says that God is not man that he should lie. Have you ever had a man lie to you? Or a son of a man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? See, God is just not just capable to do what he said he's going to do, but he is also committed to doing what he's going to do right? He's not just capable and committed. Many times you have people who are are capable, but they're not committed. They're not going to really do anything, right? Many times also you have people who are committed, but they're not actually capable of doing anything about it. But with the character of God, you get both the capable and the committed. This is one of those things that separates him from everybody else and everything else. This is the Lord who can do everything that he wants to do. He's capable and he's committed. So here we have these criminals. They're there for crimes. They're there for you know, their own crimes. Jesus is there for the crimes of humanity. They're hung there and retained there by the nails in their body. Jesus is retained there. He is held there by his love for people. And then something amazing happens in that moment. One of those men, one of those thieves, one of those hardened criminals decides that he's going to believe. He says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And you might think, well, that doesn't make sense because there's one gospel that says, hey, listen, they were both mocking him. And then one says he, you know, turned his heart towards him. And really that only occurred after Jesus prayed them. That one thief, his heart was melted. He was changed in an instant. Do you believe that God can change people in an instant? I believe he can do things instantaneously. He can change the course of a person's life in just a moment. And so Jesus makes this statement, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And that hardened heart softened up and it melted and he became a believer. God can melt the hardest of hearts. So today he says, you will be with me in paradise. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. No one in their right mind would have said, hey, listen, I want to get crucified and hopefully I get to be crucified by Jesus. No one would have said that then. But God, through his providential efforts and planning and putting things together, made sure that that one criminal, that one hardened criminal was at the appropriate place at the appropriate time, getting in right under the wire. And there he was, able to communicate with Jesus himself. Amazing to me. What an amazing change of events. Well, there's Pilate. You know, the pilot wrote a gospel track here. He wrote it in three languages. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, right? The religious leaders, you know, said, hey, you need to change it. You need to say that that's what he said. And Pilate said, well, what I've written is what I have written. One translation says it this way. What I've written will always be written. And it has always been written. We still read those same words today, don't we? Pilate knew exactly what he was saying. And it was Pilate who performed this really amazing act of making sure that there was this very clear gospel track available for anybody to read. I think this is an amazing series of events. 
And especially because that one thief was saved. Jesus' second statement of provision was that he provides through promises. And he's the only one qualified to keep promises. He's the only one we can absolutely trust. He's the one that you can go to at any moment and realize that, hey, he's capable and he is committed and that is his character. And the testimony of the cross is that he wants to contain Not contained, but he wants to maintain his promises to you specifically. He's absolutely committed to you. He has done for you what no one else could do and what no one else would do. Dying on the cross, taking your sin, taking all of our sin. John chapter 19 says, when Jesus saw his mother and his disciple, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus's third statement of provision, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Jesus provides through the practical. Standing at the foot of the cross was Mary, mother of Jesus. There was Mary Magdalene as well. There was John as well. And every brave church planter guy, leader, had already ran for the hills. But you had these wonderful, steadfast, brave people, the mother of Jesus, standing at the foot of the cross. And what you have to know is that Jesus was like the best son ever. Never did he do anything wrong. He never talked back. He did his chores. He was cheerful. He loved to read the scripture. He loved to go worship. He was the perfect son in every way. She probably bragged him up to the other kids. Why can't you be more like Jesus? But mom, he's like perfect, right? I heard Joseph even had a little side business in his workshop. He was making these bracelets that had WWJD on them. But for any parent to lose a child is beyond comprehension. I can't even square it in my own mind. There are no words for it. If you lose your wife, you're a widower. If you lose your husband, you're a widow. If you lose your parents, you're an orphan. If you lose a child, they don't even have words for that loss. Because it's so bad, I think. So she lost her son, but not only did she lose her son, but she witnessed him being brutally killed in cold blood. Isaiah tells us that his body was so marred, it was so traumatized that you couldn't even tell if he was a man. But she knew that was her son, and she stood by him. She loved that boy with all of her heart. So Jesus, being the firstborn, cared for his mother Joseph seemed to have already passed away at this point, and so Jesus is probably in the very important position of taking care of his mom, and he's making sure that John will carry this on. Jesus' third statement of provision, he provides through the practical. We see that he's taking care of the immediate and very practical needs that will be facing his mother. Let me make just a little bit of a stretch here. Actually, it's a really big stretch. Consider the phraseology of Jesus here. He creates some distance by not calling her mother, no doubt to emphasize the new relationship with John. But even though he did not intend it, I kind of see a hidden testimony of Jesus saying, hey, I'm emphasizing a new relationship with everybody. And there's room for everybody in my life. See, believe, you've got to believe that he has your practical needs in mind. 
He has your practical needs in mind. You, you can move throughout this life and realize, oh, there's a lot of pressure here. There's a lot of pressure there. There's things coming at me. I don't, I don't know how to handle. But see, he knows those details. He looks into your life and he says, you need this and you need that. You don't need this, but I'm going to provide that for you over there. He is interested in the practical needs in your life, just like he was for his mother. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is how God provides for you. This is how God meets your practical needs. Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. See, through Christ, we can be made right. You can accept the adoption that he offers you through the work on, on the cross. This is the way forward, really. Let's move on to Jesus' fourth statement of provision. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus, right? He's providing through propitiation. Jesus providing through propitiation. Now, this is the moment that's been described as the crucifixion within the crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 27, it reads like this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it in a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So without explanation, the sky turns dark. It's an indicator, really, of in that moment, darkness moving in over the earth. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12 says, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is absolutely short. And so here he is, Jesus on the cross, and the devil is in full attack mode. He's throwing everything he has to stop Jesus from doing what Jesus is about to do, what Jesus is doing in these moments, because he knows, he knows that if he can stop him, he can throw off God's great, amazing plan of grace. But it wasn't enough. The Father in this moment, God the Father in this moment, in addition to what the devil is doing, is pouring the sin of the world upon his son. Jesus is dying in our place. He's dying as our substitute. That's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because now the wrath that was meant for you, the wrath that was meant for me, the wrath that was meant for all of humankind is being poured out on Jesus Christ himself. Look with me at Romans chapter 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation is a word used to describe the work of Christ to God. He has this ability. He's satisfying a need for someone to take the sin which cannot be tolerated by God who is holy and perfect. Because Christ is the propitiation, the satisfying sacrifice. God was set free to deal with us in love. 
See, somebody had to be the satisfying sacrifice. You and I, all of us combined, would have never satisfied the sacrifice necessary for the sin in the world, for the sin of even one person. It had to be this perfect one, this one named Jesus. Someone had to pay the bill that we could not afford to pay because Christ did that for us. You and I, we are debt-free. See, we were hostages to the devil, and Jesus took our place on the cross in some mysterious way that we can't even fully understand. During those awful hours on the cross, the Father was pouring out in full measure his wrath against sin, and the recipient of that wrath was Jesus. God was punishing Jesus as though he had personally committed every wicked deed committed by every wicked sinner. And in doing so, he could treat those redeemed as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. And he did all that for us on the cross in this moment. It's a statement of provision. He provides through propitiation. And if you think about those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are not words of somebody who's losing their faith, but this is words used by someone who's coming to the painful realization of what's actually happening in his life. Yes, he's the propitiation, but that didn't mean that it wasn't painful for Jesus. It was absolutely painful physically, but there's the psychological, there's, there's the emotional element here being separated from his father, having the wrath meant for everybody in the world poured out on him. See the difference? See how this works? Jesus says, my God, my God. These are words of pain. And may I just say this? That with those words of pain, he didn't just settle in. He took those words of pain and he gave them to his father. We should always take our pain and turn it into prayer. Always take your pain. No matter what your pain is, no matter how deep or superficial you might even think it is, you take that pain and you give it to God, my friends. Even if you don't understand, take it to the Lord. Tell the Lord, hey God, I'm in pain here. I don't understand it. I don't understand the details. I don't even know how I got here. You just say, God, I'm in pain. You confess your need. You say, hey, listen, I'm hurting here, God. You read the Psalms and you read of David and others and how they cried out to God. Consider Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you. He's saying, I feel so far away from you. I'm calling to you from the very end of the earth. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than men. This is desperation. This isn't somebody saying something just superficial, right? And so here's a thought for you. I would say to you, don't choose composure over closeness. Be 100% transparent with God. God knows you're in pain. He knows what you're bothered by. He knows what's going on on the depths of your heart. And in those moments, it is to your benefit if you just open up and, and you give it all to God. You become transparent. You become authentic with him. Don't give composure priority over closeness. You've had somebody come to you, no doubt. They, they put the facade on. And they pretend like everything's okay. How close can you be with that person if they pretend that everything's okay? Don't do that with God. Be 100% honest. Let me give you the cell phone cheat. 
If you can't find a place to be 100% honest and confess your pain to God, this is what I would say to you. Go ahead, jump in your car, throw your phone to your ear, and tell him everything going on in your heart. I have a 45-passenger van (laughs) with no window tinting, so it's terribly awkward. But in those moments, I'm just talking to God. I've got tears coming down my eyes. I'm, I'm gesturing. I might even be yelling, okay? I'm just letting it all hang out. It might feel weird. It might feel strange. But what you are doing is you're, you're showing yourself. And you're coming to the Lord. You're saying, I want to be close to you, God. I want to be next to your heart. I want, I want to get all this out on the table. I know you know about it already, but here I am. I'm going to be 100% transparent with you, God. And nobody will be the wiser. They're going to think that you're talking to me, probably. But you open up, and you will not be disappointed. It's not wrong to tell God that you're in pain. It's not even wrong for you to ask why. Many times we, we want to know the answer. Why am I going through this? Why, why is this happening? I would just say this to you, that many times you won't understand the answers that God gives you if, if he were to explain it all to you. I remember the story of a little boy who was riding in the backseat of, of his father's car and they're driving down the road and you know, the little boy says, hey, listen, Dad, when I bite into my apple, I, I open it up and and it, uh, it starts to turn brown. Why, why does that happen? To which his father starts to explain, well, the peel, son, is the protective skin that encases the apple. Inside the apple, you have uh, a changing but controlled environment. When the skin of the apple is broken, the meat of the apple is exposed to the oxygen in the atmosphere. This oxygen immediately starts to change the molecular structure of the fruit which based on temperature and humidity uh, and some other variables will affect the process known as decomposition. And as the father starts to wrap up his explanation, his son pipes up and he says, Dad, are you talking to me? And so sometimes when we ask why, we're not going to understand why. Really, the job of the believer and the Christian is to say, uh, we ask why, but God says, trust me. That's really the bottom line. Just trust me. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Jesus' fifth statement of provision, he says, I thirst. Jesus provides through the prophetic. Jesus provides through the prophetic. You can read about this in John chapter 19. He says, I thirst, and they gave him... Sour wine on a hyssop branch. So as he's fulfilling this great thing for us, he's completely dehydrated, but he's completing prophecy. In Psalm 69, verse 21, it says, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This is a direct reference to the Messiah's treatment and Jesus' fulfillment of being the Messiah. I think it's important to remember that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies given in the Old Testament. And if it were not for the Old Testament, we would have an incomplete picture of who God really is. And we would be missing so many affirming prophetic predictions that give us great confidence in recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. So we can put our faith and confidence in Christ. Not only did he pay the price, but he provides through the prophetic. Jesus' sixth statement of provision is, it is finished. He provides through purpose. 
He finished his purpose. He knew why he was here, and he did what he was called to do. He did what he was set apart to do in this world. He's saying, I've done what I was sent to do. Jesus understood his purpose, and he fulfilled it. And we benefit beyond anything we can imagine or think because he fulfilled his purpose in this world. How nice would it be for you to come to the end of your life and say, it's finished. I did what I was sent here to do. I'm afraid that there are some of you who will miss out on doing what God sent you to do. The Lord, I believe, would like to reveal to each person his purpose for them. I don't think he hides it away so that you can't ever find it. I think he would like to reveal it to you specifically and individually, and he would reveal to you in a manner that you could understand why you're here. I've said so often, you're here for a specific purpose. There are things that you can do that no one else can do, and we're depending on you to do it. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means you, my friends. There's a call on your life. There's specific things. There's a purpose for you being here that go beyond anything I could even describe, anything Pastor Steve could describe, anything any person could ever describe. God's plan for you is tied up in your purpose, and he would like to reveal that to you specifically and individually. And Jesus' seventh statement of provision, Jesus provides the path. Look with me at Luke chapter 23. Then Jesus calling out, with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. He provides the path. This is the path forward, my friends. To whom and in whom will you commit your spirit? Will it be you? Will it be somebody else? Will it be somebody that you can't even depend upon? Somebody you might not even be able to describe? Somebody you're trying to ignore but can't? Who will you commit your spirit into? This is the path forward. You can deviate my friends, and choose to get lost in the woods. You can die, you know, with some misguided adventure under your feet. You could try to reverse course and you could die trying to get back to the past. Or you can set up camp, really, and die in your tent. Or if you want to move forward, Jesus has provided the path forward for you. One day, what happened to Jesus will happen to everyone in this room. I'm not saying you'll be crucified, but you will you will inevitably die. We will all face death. And what Jesus said when he died can be said by us who are believers and who are Christians. If you are not a Christian, you shouldn't have the peace that we have. See, dying for the Christian really is a pretty good deal. You can have absolute peace. You don't have to be worried about dying. You can walk in this life and realize, hey, the best is actually yet to come. But if you don't believe, and if you're not a Christian, and if you haven't given Christ your heart 100%, then I would say you should be terrified. You should be mortified. You should have nightmares at night because you do not know what's going to happen on the other side. Without this assurance, without this relationship, you should not think that death will just be a walk in the park. In fact, it will be the very opposite. When you're a Christian, you don't have to be afraid of death. You can say into your hands, I commit my spirit. 
This was said by Stephen, by the way. Remember him in the book of Acts? He was preaching to the religious leaders. They got so upset to him uh, that they decided to stone him to death. And, and they did. They stoned him to death. And as he's dying, he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then he prays, Lord, receive my spirit. And then the last thing he says, just like Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. When my grandmother passed away, I was not privileged to be there, but we had a close family friend there. And as she started to go, it was said that my grandmother started calling out, I see Jesus, I see Jesus. And, and then she says, behind him I see Harry, I see Harry. Now I know you're wondering, who's Harry, right? Well, uh, Harry was my grandfather. Now you're wondering why would anybody be named Harry, unless you're Harry. But his Norwegian name was Ingolf. So, of course, you would change it, right? So, Harry's better than Ingolf. And none of this makes sense, except that Jesus is there waiting on the other side for the believer. The Bible says this about Stephen, that as he was being stoned, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. The Bible uses the word sleep as a metaphor for the Christian experiencing death. The Bible never uses sleep for the non-believer. The Bible never uses sleep for somebody who hasn't committed their life to Christ. That is not available for them. But for the Christian, is it scary to go to sleep? No. I mean, your kids don't want to take naps. They don't want to go to sleep, right? I mean, you have to argue with me. You need to take it. No, no. You have to go to bed. No, no, no. No, I don't want to go to bed. They'll run from you. And then you have to get the zip ties. But you talk to an adult, right? I mean, listen, if you told me I had to take a nap, I would, just, I would hug you, right? <laughs> the older I've gotten, the more naps I take. If I can do 20 minutes, man, I'm good for, you know, another four hours. It's amazing what a nap can do. for. What does a nap do? It rejuvenates you. It powers you back up so that you can attack life again. That's what this nap is. This is what sleep is. So when you, when you die, you take a nap, and then you wake up in a much better place, revved up and ready to go. That's the kind of life that we get. Those are the promises that we have. And we'll be right there in the very presence of Jesus. It's sad to say, but the more funerals I do, the more excited I get about going. And I'll say things, weird things sometimes. I'm, I'm jealous. But for the believer, I am jealous. They get to stand and they get to communicate and they get to hang out with with our Lord and our Savior. Oh, it is going to be a wonderful moment. I want to say this in closing. You can have that kind of relationship. You can have those provisions in your life at play. And this path that God's provided forward is the best way to go. Would you stand with me? Will the worship team come? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We leave Jesus on the cross today. We know the rest of the story. We know what he has done and what he's accomplished. But in this moment, I'm just coming to you very humbly and I'm saying, do you have that peace that I talked about?
the Lord has made such great provision for you, specifically. And in the quietness of this moment, in your private moment, we say close your eyes and bow your heads. We could even dim the lights if you like. What I'm asking you to do is just talk very intimately with this Lord who loves you so much. You could say, God, I need you more now than I've ever needed you. I don't really have what Anthony was talking about. And if you're willing to make that confession, which is a confession for somebody who has not ever known, and it's a confession for some that have forgotten, which, by the way, we have all been there. We have all forgotten. And that peace that I'm talking about, that joy that comes with knowing the future, having someone, the only one you could commit your spirit to, knowing that and the peace that that brings is the best way to live. But if you don't have that peace, and there's a twinge of, I need what he's talking about. I need what the scripture is pointing to. That means that you've let something in. For without that peace, you're just pretending. Pretend no more, my friend. Embrace his grace and acquire that peace. So Lord, for all of us in the room, we confess our need. We say, Lord, we need you. We say, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Please, Lord, take my life. I commit my spirit to you. This is the path forward. I receive all that you've done for me on that cross. Thank you for being my sacrifice and taking on all the wrath and all the sin and doing that work for the Father on my behalf. So in your name, Jesus, I pray, trusting you with everything. Amen. As we worship, the altars are open. I would encourage you to spend some time with the Lord as we move into this Easter celebration. But knowing that God has additional things that he'd like to speak to you about privately at the altar.
I'd like to pray for us and um, just make mention that the altars will continue to be open and that there will be folks here more than willing to pray with you. I realize the gravity of what we've talked about today is, is pretty, it's pretty intense. But this is what we know about our Lord, that he would have stopped at nothing to make a way forward for you. We realize that there was no pain and no humiliation, no torture that he would not have gone through for you, for me. And the cross stands as a testimony of his love for you, his love for me, his love for those that aren't even in the room with us or on the internet with us today. No greater love has anyone communicated. No greater love has anyone ever demonstrated than what Christ has done on the cross. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for being our substitute. The weight of realizing this is heavy. But the freedom that you give us in return is priceless. We can run, Lord, without the weight of the world. We can run, Lord, knowing that you carry us forward and that your presence is within us and around us and doing work for us and in us. So we thank you, Holy Spirit. Bless your people, Lord, your most precious people. May they, Lord, commune with you at a whole nother level of intimacy this week, especially as we build up into Friday. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Bless your church. Amen.